So uh, Kristen Howerton, an, an author, a columnist, she writes about being at a concert recently and at an outdoor venue. It was a very large concert. She said, as the headliner act started to take the stage, an unmistakable aroma started drifting across the crowd. If you've ever been to a concert, you know what that smell was, right? Yeah, people were lighting up the pot. That's exactly what it was, marijuana. And you know, I think like, Kristen, honey, have you never been to a concert before? This kind of goes with the territory, right? If you've been to a concert, you know what I'm talking about. She gets it. Listen to what she wrote in her article. For those of us who attend lots of concerts, smelling pot is not an unusual experience. In fact, my experience has been it's rather common for concert attendees to light up at a show. What was different about this occasion was I wasn't at a mainstream concert. I was at a festival show put on by a local Christian radio station. The entire show was explicitly Christian. This group of people next to me had made the decision to buy tickets, spend an evening listening to worship music, hear a prominent pastor speak, and get high at the concert. So, so we're in this message series called Asking for a Friend, and we're, t- we're asking those questions that maybe we wonder about, but we don't really want to be the one asking the question. So it's convenient to have a friend who wants to know. And so we've, we've covered several really good topics, and it's brought out a lot of interesting conversations. Like, if you missed any of the sermons, or if you want to go back and listen to some of them, they're on iTunes on our podcast, or you can go to the church website, connectionchristian.org, and you can catch those. Like last week's, man, a lot of conversation came out of, does God care how I vote? So, the, the question this week is, does God care if I get buzzed as a Christian? Which is just my way of combining a whole lot of questions that a lot of people have got, whether they admit it or not, about what does God think about marijuana? What does God think about alcohol? What does God think about these things? And we want to dig into the Bible and see what does God say about this. And uh, it it is a question that everybody needs to think about in this room, Christians especially, because the trend is not moving towards less use but more use. For example, when I was a kid, if, if you were smoking pot, you were doing something illegal. And not, that doesn't mean that some people weren't doing it, but you did off to the side, you know, at the school parking lot after school's over or whatever. What do we now, like 25 states have marijuana usage as being legal in some way, shape, or form, whether it's medical, or four states actually allow recreational use. You can have some. Like you can go to Washington State, Oregon, Alaska, Colorado, District of Columbia, and you can light up. Some of you are like, I'm checking TripAdvisor. Don't do that. Anyway, this is legal, so, and I don't see that trend changing anytime soon. What that means is more and more states are going to allow marijuana usage, to which then a Christian can't just say, well, it's illegal, so I shouldn't do it. You've got to think this through. Well, and then you've got alcohol, right? It's legal in all 50 states and the District of Columbia if you're 21. Some states, it's even as low as 18 in certain situations. So, again, think about this. 2014, the national study was done. What they found is for people who were 18 years of age and older in, in 2014, Nine out of ten said, I've had alcohol at some point in my life. Which is pretty much just everybody, right? Everybody, yeah, I've had it at some point in my life. Here's the thing that I found interesting. Seven out of ten, 18 years of age and older, said, I've had it in the last year. And this is the one that really got me. One out of four said, 25%. One out of four said, I have binge drank this last month. One out of four. Now, I don't know what this, the stats are on exactly how many people in the United States would call themselves Christian But I'm guessing it's pretty high up there. So what I'm saying is, I'm not judging or anything, I'm just saying there's a lot of Christians who are wrestling with this subject. They're making decisions about it. We're making decisions about it. 
we want to maybe go back and look and say, what does God have to say about this? You know, as, as I've studied the Bible, and if you want to follow along, there's a place in your worship folder you can think this through. And you don't have to agree with me or disagree with me. I just want us to think together and look. So one of the things that I found interesting as I've studied the Bible, and I really want to focus in on alcohol because that's something the Bible does talk about more than other substances. The Bible actually says some neutral things about alcohol. It even says some positive things about alcohol, which might be surprising to some people. For example, in the Old Testament, I don't know if you realize this, in the Old Testament worship of the Jewish people, they used alcohol every day in the worship of God at the temple in Jerusalem. You think, I don't know if that sounds right, or or really, I just didn't know that. Let me show you a couple of verses. Numbers chapter 15, verse 5. For each lamb offered as a burnt offering or a special sacrifice, you must also present one quart of wine as a liquid offering. So I'll stop there, because if you're not familiar with how the Jewish people worshipped God, According to what, that was numbers in the Old Testament. What, when you went to the temple, one of the first things you would see as you walked in was a, a large bronze altar. Just think of maybe, it almost like, would look like a barbecue pit to us. Made out of bronze, it's beautiful. There was a grate on top, there was fire in the center of it. So when they sacrificed the lambs every day, they would put some of the meat of the lamb on the fire. So just think about, what would that smell like? I've, I never really thought about it until recently, but as you approach the temple, it would smell good. It would smell like wood smoke. It would smell like, you know, roasting meat. Which is why many times our prayers are described as like a, a fragrant offering going up to God because there were a lot of sensory things about going to worship. There was the, the altar, there was the incense that was offered inside the temple. But one of the things they did was they would take that drink offering, that one quart of wine, and they would pour it on the altar with the flames. And so that would be the, it would run over the lamb. And it was uh, being poured out as an offering to God. I'll give you another verse, Numbers 28, starting in verse 3. It says, This is the fire gift that you are to present to God. Two healthy yearling lambs every day as a regular whole burnt offering. Sacrifice one lamb in the morning, the other in the evening, together with two quarts of fine flour mixed with a quart of olive oil for the grain offering. This is the standard whole burnt offering instituted at Mount Sinai as a pleasing fragrance. There's that, that aroma, that, that fire gift to God. Now, stop there for a second. When did this start? It says that he was instituted at Mount Sinai. What happened to Mount Sinai? You've got to go back in Israel's history, Jewish history. They've been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God delivers them through Moses, the ten plagues. They're on their way to what is going to become Israel, the land that God promised them. They stopped at Mount Sinai, which is where God gave them the ten commandments. Uh-huh. And he gave them the laws about how to worship him. And they were given instructions about how to build, first of all, this tabernacle, this tent that they would worship God in. Eventually, they would build the temple in Jerusalem. And so this comes all the way back from the time of Moses, what you're supposed to do. Let me go ahead and keep reading the verse here. Then he goes on, he talks about the whole burnt offering, and he talks about the drink offering. And he says the drink offering that goes with this offering is a quart of strong beer. Now, that, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, not English. And the word there you find in Hebrew means fermented, or it is actually, fermented barley, which is why English translators either will use like strong drink or they'll translate it into beer. Fermented barley drink. So, pour out the drink offering before God in the sanctuary, the Bible says. And I bet you never thought that would be in the Bible. Pour out the drink offering before God. So it's this idea of just being poured out before God. It's a part of their worship in the Old Testament. Here's another thing. Wine in the Old Testament and is described actually as a gift from God. Psalm 104, verse 14. God makes grass grow for the cattle, plants for people to cultivate, bringing food from the earth, wine that gladdens the human heart, oil to make your face shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. 
wine is being spoken of here is something that God has given the world that's something good, the fruit of the vine. Go ahead and go to the New Testament. What was the first miracle that Jesus performed in his entire ministry? Water to wine. Yeah, you go to John chapter 2. I won't really dig into it, but here's the setting. Jesus is 30 years old now. He started to gather some disciples, and his disciples and Jesus are invited to a wedding near his hometown. His, Jesus' mom was there. His brothers and sisters were there. So there, it's just a big celebration. They get to the reception, and Jesus' mom comes to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. You're like, why is she telling him? But maybe Mary was like helping with the reception. Maybe she's helping coordinate with the family. But running out of wine at the reception wasn't just awkward. This was a, would have been a huge embarrassment to them. Clearly, Mary is saying to Jesus, you need to do something, which is interesting because he's never done a miracle before, but she already knows that he could do something. He has this little conversation with her like, this is really not my time. But she must have recognized the look on his face because she said to the, the servants, the ones who were helping cater the event, I guess, said, do whatever he tells you. So here's what Jesus said. I want you to fill those buckets up with water. They had these six stone jars. They were about 20 or 30 gallons each, a little bit bigger than a, or a little bit smaller than a 55-gallon drum. Six stone jars, they were for ceremonial hand washing. So fill them up with water. So the servants went out and got the water from the well. They dumped it into the bucket. So you got like 180 gallons of water. And they says, draw it out and give it to the wedding steward, the guy who's in charge of the whole feast. And they did so. And when they started drinking it, it is wine. Water to wine. And what did they say about it? This is the best wine I've ever had which is what you would expect if Jesus was going to make something. Like, you know, usually people wait till everybody's drunk, then they bring out the cheap wine. You brought out the good wine. Jesus' first miracle, changing water to wine. In fact, it's pretty likely Jesus himself drank wine on occasion. One of the criticisms leveled against Jesus by the Pharisees, some of the ones who were his adversaries, well, let me just tell you in Jesus' own words, because he says, uh, Matthew 26, verse 20, I'm sorry, Luke seven thirty four. Jesus talking about himself. He says, the son of man has come eating and drinking. I've come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And follow the logic here. How can they say that he's a glutton and a drunkard? He's, he drinks too much. How can they say that if he doesn't? He's just like, I don't drink anything at all. He obviously would sit down with sinners and he would have some beverages and some food. Jesus was not a drunkard. He was not a glutton. This wasn't a true statement. He probably wasn't a teetotaler either. And then you go to the night before Jesus died. Jesus implemented something that we actually to this day do. We still honor Jesus the way he taught us that night before he died uh, with fruit of the vine. You go to Matthew 26 now, verse 27. It says, Jesus took a cup of wine. He gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to his disciples and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It's poured out as a sacrifice. Does that sound familiar? Didn't we just see a verse a few minutes ago about the drink offering being poured out? Jesus says, This is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In case you're wondering, we use grape juice here, but the same thing applies. You know, this is something Jesus said to do. Here's another example. First century, which is when the church started. This is when the Bible, the New Testament part of the Bible was written down. The state of medicine being what it was or wasn't in the first century. Uh, here's what the Apostle Paul said to a young pastor named Timothy. There's some advice he gave him. First Timothy 5.23, don't drink only water. You ought to drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach because you're sick so often. So back then, wine was a little bit of wine was used as medicine. And it helped 
maybe purify the water. I don't know. There's more in here that suggests alcohol talks about it in neutral or positive. So I'm just trying to give you an overview here. So I, I love something that C.S. Lewis once said. He said, it's a mistake to think that Christians ought to all be teetotalers. Mohammedanism, that's Islam, is, and not Christianity, is the teetotaler religion. So you, you got that on the one side. You've got some of these verses. So that I've looked. The Bible does not say drinking an alcoholic drink is a sin. You've got that. But is that all it says? No. For one thing, you guys know, there is, so much, there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. Right? There's, there's such a thing as taking something's good and using it to bad purposes. So we, we need to look at the balance here. Can you choose to take, partake of alcohol? Sure. But you need to think about this. The Bible also sets out a very clear boundary. It explicitly prohibits intoxication. It's just a, and I'm, I'm talking to Christians here, and I want to read you a verse that spells it out very clearly for Christians. This is in Ephesians chapter 5. It says, Do not get drunk on wine. And in case you think there's a loophole there, you just don't get drunk on anything. Because it leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a very clear line. There's no wiggle room here. You do not become intoxicated. And when you're, when you're dealing with a substance, alcohol, or anything else that, that diminishes your capacity physically, that impairs your judgment, that uh, you know, helps you like, lower your inhibitions, and you start finding yourself doing things you wouldn't do otherwise, you are already taking the first steps toward intoxication the moment you choose to, to partake of that substance. And the Bible says you don't want to do this because getting intoxicated leads to debauchery. Which, I don't know about you, but what in the world is debauchery? I mean, it doesn't sound good. Just saying the word sounds kind of bad, but like, what is that? Good question. And let me answer that first by saying something kind of in a big picture. God never puts something out of bounds or off limits or said something is wrong or don't do that just because. He's not arbitrary. He doesn't just go, ooh, that looks like fun. Let's say no just to make them mad. Oh, that's too much fun for them to handle. There's always a bigger picture at play when God puts something off limits. And sometimes it's, it's difficult to understand God's rationale and reasoning, but anytime he says no to something, it's for our own good or because there's something else that's more important than us doing this or not doing this. But when it comes to substances like alcohol, this is like a really easy one to figure out why God is saying this. This is not hard to understand. Debauchery. Here, let me just explain it this way. How many really painful, regrettable things do you have in your life or you know of other people? And, and all of those painful, regrettable things started with the words, we've been drinking. Right? It's like the redneck epitaph. You know, what's going to be on the redneck's tombstone? Hold my beer and watch this. And we, there you go. How many people can relate to that? Some of the most painful things in your life started with, we've been drinking too much. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, out in Seattle, police were called in the middle of the night to an assault in progress. Some guy's screaming, and they're thinking, like, somebody's getting murdered. So the cops show up, and they find a guy. Sorry, this is a little graphic. He is impaled on a metal fence, like a four or five-foot metal fence. And, and so they go up to him, they immediately start to try to stabilize him to get the ambulance there, and you're going to be okay, sir. And so they start to interview him while they're looking around like, who did this to you, sir? No one. Okay. What happened? He said, well, I'm a ninja. And at that point, they realize, he's dressed in all black. You're a ninja, sir, yes? So nobody did this? No. 
what happened? He said, I was attempting to jump over the fence and I overestimated my abilities. Sir, have you been drinking? Maybe. (laughs) Again, like alcohol, it leads to debauchery. It leads to all those things that you're embarrassed and ashamed of because in the moment it seemed like a good idea, but it was because it was the the substance talking, not you. It impaired your judgment. It made you think things that you would never do sober were a good idea. I love this verse. Proverbs 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker. Beer is a brawler. Whoever's led astray by them is not wise. And here's the thing. Intoxication, whatever source it comes from, inhibits our ability to be self-directed. God very much wants us to always be in control of ourselves. And you don't want to be out of control. One of the old words that they used to use in the Bible back when English language has changed, but like you go to the King James Version, it talks about being sober-minded. You know, be self-controlled, sober-minded. And there's so many things. I know there's other things that can make you lose your self-control, like anger. I mean, so love sometimes can make you do goofy things. But certainly, there are substances like alcohol that can do that very quickly. And we see the effects all the time. You, you think about how many things happen in the world because we don't maintain our self-control. Even more so, Paul says, we don't maintain the, the connection with the Holy Spirit, listening to Him guide us. So we're not self-directed anymore. We're not spirit-directed anymore. And we do so many things that end up being hurtful. I mean, think about how many, how many personal injuries occur because of drinking. How much, you know, drinking and driving and accidents from that. You think about addiction and the toll it takes on our lives. You think about just the illnesses that come from drinking too much. You think about assaults, fights, sexual assaults, rapes that all happen because of drinking. Spending money you don't have. Doing things you would never agree to sober. You, you get this, right? I mean, we all agree and we all know this is just not... Even if you're not a Christian, you would say, that's really not my best life. That's not the one I'm going to look back on and be proud of. So, I, I know what people are thinking. I'm good. As long as I don't get drunk, I'm, I'm fine, right? I can just go up to that line, but as long as I don't cross it or I don't get too far over it. I'm, well, not so fast, Kimosavi. Let's Let's think about this. Barry Cameron, he's a pastor down in Texas, Grand Prairie, Texas. He says this, For years, well-meaning, sincere Christians have debated the subject of drinking. Let me be clear by saying there is not a single verse in the Bible that says a Christian cannot have a drink. And I, I agree with that. But the Bible clearly warns about the destructive and addictive nature of alcohol and is very clear that drunkenness is always wrong. So this is me now, Brian. Considering the dangers associated with alcohol, I mean, if this is something you're going to choose to do, you ought to, extreme caution is advised. All right, so there's a powerful warning again in the book of Proverbs. This is just wisdom. This is just a way to help us filter what we do and don't do, what we say yes and no to, or how far we go with something. Proverbs 23, who are the people who are always crying the blues? Who do you know who reeks of self-pity? Who keeps getting beat up for no reason at all? Whose eyes are blurry and bloodshot? It's those who spend the night with a bottle for whom drinking is serious business. Don't judge wine by its label or its bouquet or its full-bodied flavor. Judge it rather by the hangovers it leaves you with, the splitting headache, the queasy stomach. Do you really prefer seeing double with your speech all slurred, reeling and seasick, drunk as a sailor? They hit me, you say, but it didn't hurt. They beat on me. I didn't feel a thing. When I'm sober enough to manage it, bring me another drink. And... And I'm not making fun of anybody, I'm not judging anybody, but the Bible is trying to give us some good, strong warning to, to find out where the line is. And this is American culture. And the statistics are sobering, pun intended. 
Again, national study done back in 2014 found that 16.3 million American adults have had to deal with alcohol abuse disorders, addiction issues. It also found that 88,000 people die from alcohol-related injuries and and, uh, accidents every year, which makes it the fourth leading preventable cause of death in the United States. Just don't drink too much, and those deaths will go away. I hope that, you know, if you do choose to partake, that you will be wise and you will use great caution. And I'm looking around. I see a lot of people in here who are not yet 21. You're still looking forward to your 21st birthday. And so, yeah, kind of spotlight's kind of on you all. So just, I want, I want to tell you something for those of you who are, like, that's a milestone. I get it. Because I see all the time in my social media feed, all my friends and my friends' kids who are turning 21. It's a big day of celebration. This is the first day I can drink legally. Hopefully it's the first day they drink, but so be it. So, it's, you know, I see the pictures, like, they go with their friends who also are 21, they go out and celebrate with the drink, or they're with their parents at Fast Eddie's, whatever. I, again, I'm not judging. It's, if that's something you want to do, that's fine. And, uh, but I would say something to those of you who are not yet 21. There's something that we know that we didn't used to know about the physiology of the brain and brain development. So 21 is a good age that we've picked because it gets you into adulthood, but your brain is not fully developed until your mid-20s. Which means you are so much more susceptible to addiction than an older adult. This is why we see teenagers who are full-blown alcoholics as teenagers within six months. It's because your brain allows you to get addicted so much more quickly to lots of stuff, not just, not just alcohol. So my caution to you would be, okay, so you're going to choose to enjoy this. First of all, maybe just push the date out into the future just as a safety net. Or, you know, just be very careful about how much you allow this into your life. And uh, certainly if you're not 21 yet, this shouldn't even be a, a discussion, right? And all the parents in the room are going, absolutely. This is just not, it's, off, it's, uh, it's illegal. You know, if your conscience allows you to partake of alcohol, I want to talk to the rest of you now. Spotlight's off the teenagers now. All right, so there's, there's another thing to worry about for all of us. There is the addictive nature of alcohol. It's just a, it's a thing that we need to be aware of. If you have a family history of alcoholism or, you know, you just sense that you are an addictive person, kind of person, you, caution is in order. If you are a Christian leader here in this church, if you're like a, an elder or a deacon, well, we don't even have deacons or deaconesses by that title. We have ministry team leaders. The Bible talks about in First Timothy and it talks in Titus about one of the things you want to look for in a person who's going to lead other people in the church is they don't want to be given too much wine. It doesn't say, like, they don't ever drink. What it says, you don't want to have, my, my way of saying it, I've heard another pastor say this, you don't want to have a reputation as being a drinker. You know what, like, the first thing that people think of you, oh, that guy, you know, yeah, he's an elder in our church. Yeah, he, he can put him down. Man, you don't want that to be your reputation. That's not what you should be known for. It's not the first thing that springs to people's minds. Because, you know, we're, we're setting an example. Here's something that's very interesting. In the Old Testament, priests who were on duty going into the temple, which their day or their week, they were not allowed to drink. There are some examples in the Old Testament of some guys who were drinking. They were drunk, and they got struck down by God. So not a good idea. So we want to be at our best. You know, for all of us, leader or not, we want to think about the example we set for our kids, for our family members, for our friends. We want to think about, you know, how we handle things and and what people perceive. You know, and I understand. Like, this is the thing to me about, like, pot, is to be really honest with you. If Missouri ever legalizes marijuana, I still... My opinion, I don't think that Christians should partake because 
What will your non-Christian friends say? Oh, I think it's so cool that you're a Christian and you can smoke pot. No, they're going to scorn you and they're going to in turn scorn God. They're not going to go, oh, that's awesome that you have that freedom. They're going to go, you're a hypocrite. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says this. Just because something's technically legal doesn't mean that it's spiritually appropriate. If I went around doing whatever I thought I could get by with, I'd be a slave to my whims. Just my encouragement to you, if you are a person whose conscience allows you to drink, if you think Christians are free to drink, just understand that you're also free not to drink. You have that freedom. So, And if, if this is something that's an addictive thing to you, God will give you the strength over time to learn to say no to something that you right now cannot say no to. Just one last thought I want to leave you with. A mature person realizes that there are times when it is beneficial to abstain from something you are allowed to do. Again, your conscience tells you it's okay to drink. That's okay. Yeah, it's between you and God, not you and me. Uh, But there are moments and times and situations where sometimes you just go, I'm free to, but I'm not going to because of where I'm at or who's with me or whatever. Here's what I'm saying. Saying that you just need to be thoughtful about when and where you are drinking and what impact that might have on other people. Let me give you a verse, and then I'll give you a couple of examples, because I don't want to just be vague about this. Romans 14, verse 21 and 22 says, It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. Now, you may believe there's nothing wrong with what you're doing, and that's okay. Just keep it between yourself and God. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they've decided is right. Again, I'm not making an all-encompassing statement. I'm just saying there are moments when you say, Considering who I'm with, considering what they're going through, considering what I know this person's dealing with, I'm going to say no right now, even though I could say yes, just for their benefit. I want to quote C.S. Lewis again here. He has another great thing to say about this. He says, You know, it may be the duty of a particular Christian or any Christian at a particular time to abstain from strong drink because he's the sort of person who can't drink at all without drinking too much or because he wants to give money to the poor, or because he's with people who are inclined to drunkenness and must not encourage them by drinking himself. So what I'm saying is, sometimes you might want to say, out of respect for this person, I'm going to choose not to do what I'm allowed to do. I'm going to, out of love for them, out of a recognition that this is a struggle for them, I'm not going to do that. One blogger, she was talking about this. She says, "I, I look at my social media feed, and I just think, my gosh, I see people posting up their pictures of their Chardonnay party. I see people posting up their... You know, their, their craft beer parties. I see people posting up all these things and like, we're Christians and we can do this. We've got freedom in Christ. And she says, I think, do you not have any alcoholic friends? Do you realize you're rubbing it in their face all the time when you post this stuff on Facebook and on Instagram all the time? Show a little love for the people around you and the compassion for the things that they're going through. And don't just, if, if that's your desire to do this, just don't flaunt it all the time. So there's times when it's the most loving thing to do to say, my conscience allows this. God is okay with this. He made it. It's good. But I'm going to choose not to do this because of where I'm at or who I'm with. Can a Christian drink? I understand. Some people in our church have thought this through. And you've come to the conclusion, it's okay. Okay. I understand some of us have come to the conclusion, no, this is not something that I want or need in my life. And it's safer that way. And again, I say, okay. The thing I would encourage all of us to do is to be to be prayerful about everything like this and to, to let the Holy Spirit guide us about what is right and what's most appropriate. And I want to tell you something else too. I, I, really, I care deeply for you. 
as a pastor of this church, someday in the future, I'm going to have to answer to Jesus about how I've led you and how I've, what kind of example I've set for you. I'm like on the hook for you. So I, I care about you and I'm responsible for you and I want what's best for you. And I want you to know that if addiction is something that you struggle with or you have struggled with, we get it. There's so many people in this room who understand what that's like. We, it's our story or it's our family member's story, a good friend's story. Nobody's going to judge you. I wish I had a dollar for every time somebody said to me, I am the only person in this church that has a problem. Like, everybody else in this church has got an amazing life, and I'm the only screwed up one. And I'm like, no, nope, everybody's got problems. We just don't wear name tags that say, here's my thing. Right? So we're here to help each other. We're here to grow closer to God. We're here to connect to God and each other through Jesus. And that's what I want most for you. The kingdom of heaven is not a matter of eating and drinking it's a matter of you know, joy and peace and righteousness and the Holy Spirit. It is, it's us finding our lives put back together in God. So I want you to know if this is a struggle for you, you know, write it on your Connect card privately, and, and I'll call you this week, and we can talk and set up an appointment, or we can just catch me after church. And the most important thing that I, just, I never want to leave you without saying is that your life will never be what it's supposed to be until you're reconnected to God through Jesus. And what that means is you say, for the first time in my life, I'm not going to call the shots in my life. I'm going to submit myself to the authority of Jesus, and I'm going to turn control of my life to him. I'm going to let him say what I should do and not do. And, and when you do that, the first thing that Jesus asks you to do is to be immersed and baptized in water. And if you've never done that, again, write on your Connect card, let's meet this week, or catch me as soon as service is over, and we'll put you with somebody who can share with you what that looks like. So much, God, God will never force his way into your life. He wants you to choose it. And what a privilege it is to say yes to God and to find like the true joy that he wants to bring into your life. Let's pray right now.